Welcome to the Pragmatic Lead Podcast. Your hosts are Alex Pachuk and John Massey. We have conversations with folks throughout the tech industry to get real-world perspective on how people make things happen for their careers and businesses. Check out pragmatically.com for more content just like this. Hey, John. How's it going? Good, Alex. What's up, man? How you doing? Doing well. A lot going on this week. Been pretty busy. What about you? Yep. Yeah, a lot of the same. Cool, man. So tell me about this framework. Kanafin. All right, man. So we've been talking about complexity a lot. We just talked about that with a little bit about it with uh, our buddy Jeff. You've been kind enough to entertain the conversations and seems like you've been getting more and more curious. So what I did was I wrote down just like a bunch of bullet points about Kanevin which is a framework for situational awareness. I'm going to use that term because I think it's a little less confusing. And what I think we could do, maybe that might be helpful, is just kind of walk through, you know, what does it mean? Where did it come from? Why why am I kind of drawn to it? Maybe you too, your curiosity as well. Maybe some use cases. And I was thinking maybe we could do some storytelling, right? Maybe we can walk through some examples together and kind of stretch our own thinking. For those that are listening, this is actually a preparatory conversation. So we're hoping that this episode could be a good starting point for folks for an episode we're planning to record later this month with Dave Snowden, who was the originator of the Kinevin framework, which we hope to get deeper into the subject matter on the applications of the framework and styles of thinking for being successful instead of going through and talking about what Kinevin is because we think that that's largely been exercised already and we'd like to get to the meat of the matter which is the applied science is that about right alex yeah this is a a theory or framework to deal with complexity so complex adaptive systems yep and it's funny because this framework is uh is complex that's why we need this conversation before we talk to Dave Snowden. And the reason why we're talking to Dave Snowden is uh, I think we, we're having conversations. And for me, it's hard to wrap my head around this, this framework dealing with complexity. So it's, it's a complexity dealing with complexity. And yeah, we decided to reach out to Dave Snowden to see if he would be uh, willing to talk to us and, and, and kind of walk us through his thinking and how can we apply this framework in a day-to-day life. Yeah. That's interesting. So I'm, I'm curious what you've learned and kind of the basics of the framework. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to do a terrible job explaining it, but I think in the show notes, I've found um, there's a couple of resources on YouTube. Cultivating Leadership is a channel on YouTube that I found to be the most approachable flavor or path into trying to understand Kinevin as a framework, partially because Kinevin as a framework is, it's about your state of mind as a leader. And one of the things that they warn leaders about when just talking about Kinevin is that as leaders, when we solve a problem, we then approach, and it was successful, we then approach every problem with the same solution, expecting the same results. And 
in complexity, there's never what they told is there's no real guarantees that one solution for one instance in one system or a team for, uh, or company would also be successful in another instance. And for example, when we were talking about the, the developer sprint in the previous episodes and the blog posts that we put out, the position was that the dev sprint is an experiment to try on for your team, but there's no guarantee that spending your time that way would actually be beneficial to you have to understand what you're trying to do based on the context. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. So paraphrase and the way I understand it is that it doesn't make sense to be fixated on specific framework, be uh, really um, saying that there's one framework that will solve all your problem or the ideal process. There's always going to be variables that will introduce something new, unknown to the system. Therefore, it's a complex system, uh, right? So it's always depends. It depends on the company, depends on the team, depends on the project. It always depends. Yes. And so I've always, I think where I might be, how I think I am, I feel more naturally drawn to this style of thinking is I'm always thinking about or trying to avoid risk or avoid pain if you're talking about motivation. And in that practice through my career, I've realized that the decisions that I've made with my team or in the work that I'm doing might've had a negative effect somewhere else that I didn't understand. And what I really appreciate about Kinevin is it, it honors that there are things that are very predictable, but it also reveals to us that and asks us to admit to ourselves that there are times where we don't know what's going to happen. And it provides us really a map. And that's how I'm starting to think of Kinevin is yes, it's labeled as a framework, but I'm, I've also heard the term map being used by folks like uh, Jennifer Berger from Cultivating Leadership as a map to help me understand, well, what state is my environment in and how should I behave as a leader to try to get to the next step and use either. And then, yeah, I can fall back on things that I've done in the past, of course, but they should be done based on context of what I'm doing. So starting at the top of like this list, so now I'm looking at my my list of notes here. And I'm thinking maybe we could just go back and forth on what we think these things mean to us. So Kinevin is kind of a funny word when I first saw it. It's C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. Uh, when I first saw it, I thought it was like Cinevin or Cinefin, but Kinevin, it's actually a Welsh word and it means habitat, acquainted, and familiar. And does that relate to anything? Like when you think of that phrase and you think of the, how the framework is postured, does it make sense to you? Well, knowing the framework, I know everything, like the core idea is the context. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's like the, that habitat uh, equating familiar is, is about where you are and what's around you. What's the environment you're in? What's the context you're working with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So, so habitat and familiar are, are interesting. So, I'm, so habitat is where I reside. and and how familiar am I with it or how acquainted am I with, with my habitat? So it's a tough word. It's, it's a word that I think might do the framework injustice. If you saw Kinevin out of context, what would even get you to want to engage with it just based on its brand? And I think it suffers uh, adoption wise. I think it's going to suffer from that. 
largely because it's it's a foreign word to at least to me and um i was only interested in it because i've been looking for applying complexity theory to management science and evan was the first thing that came up it's actually the only thing that's come up but uh i think long-term adoption is gonna is gonna struggle a bit with that name yeah i also think the uh the adoption is not as well adopted is because of uh it promotes complexity and unknown and i think most organization and people striving for some structure and clarity mm -hmm. so maybe it goes against what people naturally leaning towards yeah that's a great point we all we feel comfortable when we can predict what's going to happen so we always try to set ourselves up or set our work up in a way where we can easily understand what's going to happen next and that is largely human nature but we'll hopefully we'll get deeper into that either while we're chatting today or uh when we talk to Snowden later or other professionals. On the next bullet here, it is defined as a system for sense-making, also called a decision-making framework for leaders. So to me, what that means is that Kinevin is a tool to help me understand, make sense of the environment I'm in and help me make a decision or come to an understanding of how I can get to a decision, right? Yeah. Kinevin is derived from several core disciplines, which I thought was interesting. So it's not just complexity theory, it's also systems theory. And we see that in some of the modeling that comes out of Kinevin. And there's also a tool, I forgot what it was called, but it's sense, uh, sense maker. Yeah, the sense maker tool. So there are tools and modeling and, and system discovery is still a part of it, but it's it's also paired with these other sciences. Uh, network theory, there was, for instance, where I've heard, seen an example of network theory is in the use of heuristics or the term enabling constraints, which we'll talk a little bit about later, where if in your network or in a social network, you can define a heuristic that can allow people to organize around. For instance, the example that was used in the talks that I've listened to or come from the military. And Dave Snowden himself used Napoleon um, from historical war times, where he told his generals to march to the sound of the guns. And it creates an interesting uh, network or social network opportunity. So if Alex, you and I are generals, and we're in different parts of the battlefield, we don't see each other, we have no cell phones or any technology to stay in touch, and we hear guns, I know you're moving in that direction. You know I'm moving in that direction. Therefore, there's this really interesting layer of meta communication or, or additional intelligence within our network where we can behave and set expectations or plan absent of being able to see, even see each other. Is that the same as uh, intuition? I don't know. Well, I mean, I guess, yeah, because... Some, subconsciously, you can make certain assumptions about what's happening like if you if you hear some noises outside and you don't see it you can probably make up what that noise is without actually seeing the noise directly so it sounds to me it's similar to that if you hear the the gunshots you know there's something going on and, and you're probably <laughs> going in, in that direction as well because you're making the same assumptions because we were trained in the same camp we have the same base of knowledge the same base of information the same uh, fundamentals of uh, of reality. Yeah, actually, that's really smart. Um, I'm looking at the definition of intuition, and 
something in here is the different fields use the word intuition in very different ways, including but not limited to direct access to unconscious knowledge. And I think the difference between with intuition is there's, I think it's, this is ambiguous, but my thought is that if we say intuition, there's some kind of like unspoken, unconscious gut feeling that we get that is not as, uh, it's not like it's, it is a part of the decision-making process, but it's not as obvious as saying march to the sound of the guns. Like that is like, okay, this is an input or a heuristic I know is going, I know this is how things are going to happen versus saying if I'm having a conversation with someone and I just don't feel right about either making this higher or they might not be a fit culturally. I think that's, that maybe is there, I think there, it is an input. Intuition is definitely an input, but I don't think it's exactly the same thing. Okay. But definitely worth speaking. Again, this is just opinion, right? Mm-hmm. And then the other input to Kinevin is learning theories, which I don't really have a lot to talk about regarding learning theory. But uh, what I do know is that, and something that I do see in Kinevin is when you're taking feedback from a group, uh, particularly people of, of humans or a human system, you want to be able to take feedback in multiple formats. So they say not just written text, but also pictures. Yeah, picture, audio, any video, any like having an open format so that because at least in learning, what I've understood is that folks learn in different ways or they're optimized to learn in different ways. So you have kinetic learning, so learn by doing, learn by watching, uh, learn by reading. Like and and so where I kind of see that parallel is in the gathering of information for the leader to make a decision is to make the inputs varied. Okay. So the systems, complexity, network, learning, the, uh, the assumptions, the, the behavior, it all sounds like cognitive and behavioral science, which is psychology. So do you think this, this uh, Ganathan framework is just uh, certain parts picked from psychology, how people behave and think and learn and interact with each other? Uh, yeah. Well, I know complexity theory absolutely is, and all of these touch on that. Systems is ambiguous. Systems theory, we see that a lot in technology. It's usually the dominant theory. But if you look at complexity, it, a lot of it comes from biology and looking how, at how systems look or work in concert with other details. So for instance, we are used to looking at a system and breaking it down into smaller parts and looking at each part and understanding each part as an individual element to the whole. Complexity asks us to look at the system as a whole instead of each part. So it's uh, the opposite of deconstructionism. I might be saying that the wrong way, but uh, instead of destructuring a system and understanding the parts, it's how does everything fit together? And what Kinevin does is provides us some tools for understanding how to work with a system that is very complex. Okay, so let's let's talk about that. How do you use it? How do you apply it? How do you use it? I know it's a it's a pretty abstract philosophical framework. Yeah. So how do you think about the system? So you are an engineer manager leader in uh, working with a team. How do you start thinking about the system as a whole? So it depends on what kind of system you're in. 
So Kinevin gives us four quadrants to think about. And maybe we'll start start with that and we'll go through each one because we have to understand the state you're in before deciding how to respond um, or how to how to behave, I think is is more appropriate because responding is a part of what we do once we understand where we are. So um, Kinevin first is going to encourage a leader to think of the environments they're operating within. So I would ask the question, is the environment obvious? So if it's obvious and we can very clearly articulate and see what's happening, then we use uh, sense, categorize, and respond and work towards best practice because best practice should be more obvious to us. So if I'm in an obvious system, let's try to think of what would be obvious, like what would be an, something that would, or in life, what is, is there like an example we can think of that is pretty obvious to us? Well, I, I can, I can think of an example. I've been in a company for, let's say six years. I okay. know everyone really well. I interacted with people for a long time. I've been in, in similar projects. It's not a new project. I've been working with this team, with this code base and people around me for a long time. I know them well. So everything to me, there's no unknowns, at least on the, on the surface. I'm comfortable in this environment, right? To me, it's, it's obvious. Okay. So now, so you're saying now in this environment, everything is pretty clear. Of course, there's always going to be some, something that's hidden, right? From your point of view, but at least on the, on the surface, it's, it's pretty clear. Well, that's still a human system. And I think they oscillate between complex and complicated. Mm-hmm. So something that's probably more obvious where the, there are no hidden variables. You said a little bit, it's like, there's, oh, there's this opportunity where something could emerge. That makes it less obvious. So something that could be obvious, maybe simpler is if you, we look at an assembly line, let's say we're building a car and we know that doors need to go on the car. In that scenario, I can use uh, sense making. So I can say, oh, let me think. Um, well, I need, I know I need uh, doors on the car. I can, and then I'm going to categorize things. Like I can say, well, what point does it make sense to apply doors to the car? And then I can respond with an action of, let's say, hire some, buy some robotics or install something in my factory. And now I have technically a best practice. Right? I know I use titanium alloy for the machines because it has the most resilience that we know of today. And then I can optimize that because the inputs and outputs are, are limited. Right? I know I, I'm going to put metal through this process. Doors will be created and then attached to the, the vehicle chassis, for instance. Right? So there's, very, there's like really limited modes for operand. Mathematics, maybe, outside of writing a new algorithm. It could be uh, what's obvious to me is if I need to add, if I need to generate a sum, I know I can take two integers and apply an operation in a calculator and I can get the output. So there's, there's really no, it's not like I'm going to, I'm going to pick up my calculator and it's going to evaporate out of my hand. I see. So we're we're talking, really, we're talking obvious things. Very obvious. This is like, this is reality. It's like, it's in front of me. I can see it. So therefore it's obvious. So there shouldn't be anything hidden or like unknown parts of the equation where 
it may or may not be true. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. And another one could be typing on a keyboard where a best practice could be applied. So position your hands a certain way. And there's a sudden obvious science, right? Because our, you know, due to prolonged duration of using a keyboard, people have been developing wrist pain and that's led to carpal tunnel. So, so best practices obvious in those, in those cases. The next one is the, the environment complicated. And it is the, the reaction of a leader should be to sense, analyze, then respond. So sense what's going on, analyze, think about what the problem space is, and then come to some conclusion. Usually also this is where, where you might need to uh, hire a consultant or a specialist, a PhD in a subject matter. These are areas where maybe, oh, Jennifer used the, or Jennifer Berger used the analogy of building a rocket to the moon. This is a complicated problem. It's one where good practice can be applied because many professionals might have different opinions. Dave Snowden might say that there's no wrong answer in the complicated space as long as there, but there are answers that or solutions that are coherent. Um, so if you're an engineering team or a team of engineers and you have multiple professionals kind of arguing over the shape of an algorithm, both are technically right for output perspective. So you trying to strive for good practice in that, in that, in that case. Okay. So complicated system in software, um, seems like it's a, it's a project. It's a well-known, like, you know, what the outcome should be, you know, how to do it. It's just complicated. Probably a lot of building blocks, uh, lots of components, lots of classes, lots of code that you, you can write and you can write it in different ways. You can create two big classes or 10 smaller classes. You can create 50 components or use one monolith. So the outcome will be the same, but how you get there, it's complicated, right? There's right. different ways you can get there. And therefore, you probably need to analyze and see what the best way or be good way to respond, right? Because mm -hmm. there is no best way. Right. And I've heard that striving for best practice in complicated scenarios creates frustration to the participants of that either project or system. Agile actually comes up within complicated. So Agile is a framework that works in the complicated domain. It actually oscillates between complex and complicated. But usually when you're running Scrum, or if you're running a backlog, or if you have a defined epic, it's the complicated process. Sometimes you need to talk to a customer, you get the feedback from the customer, and then you're juggling decisions, and you're going towards a good place, not best place because that's not feasible that's what they say is uh, the best is enemy of good right if you yeah. if you're gonna aim for best in this complicated system you there's a risk of failing because there is probably no best or it's gonna be it was gonna take you a lot a lot more time to get the best mm -hmm. so therefore you, you're probably gonna end up with a good well also like with, i just thought of this is think of what it when fighting to create some push something into best practice, in order to do that, we have to really simplify or reduce the surface area of the story you're working on in order to apply a best practice. Because you have to hammer it down to the point where the inputs and outputs are are trivial at that point. They're highly predictable, so you can apply best practice. And why I think that's interesting to think about 
as if we're trying to make complicated things obvious, is that we could be re like reducing opportunity or reducing opportunity through experimentation. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Kind of putting these words together for the first time in my mind. But I, it's like, as we're talking about it, that's the thing that I think, because in Agile, it's, or when we're practicing software development, um, there's some areas where we like best practice. Like we, maybe we standardize on a common tool. React, for instance, is for web development is one. Uh, it's fairly predictable. We can kind of, you know, use our, once you understand it, it kind of works one way, even though it can be applied different ways. And there's, so maybe actually React, I think would probably fall more in the complicated domain, right? Because then you have different state management tools. You have, yeah, it can get yeah, kind of. Sure. Well, and then if you want to have best practices, that means you're going to introduce constraints. Well, I know we're going to talk about constraints a, a bit more, yeah, but yeah. then you, 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 because there are multiple ways to achieve or structure your code. And now you're going to say, this is the best practice. So now you have constraints, like you can't use other ways to build software. Ah, that's and right. You should use this. You should use this one way to build software, and it's going to be best practice in in this specific context for our team for this project. And maybe not. It's not going to be a best practice in the the second project or with another team. Yeah, actually, I just pulled it up. I didn't. Um, usually, they in the Kinevin framework map, they provide the what type of constraints are used based on each state. And for the obvious. They say tightly constrained. So yeah, you're exactly right. Is it's complicated until you constrain it a lot. Like it's there are no degrees of freedom. Is the right. Definition. So it's fixed. You have fixed environment. Yes, completely fixed. Where in complicated, you use what's called governing constraints, and they are tightly coupled. And using good practice. So what would tightly coupled mean? I think. Tightly coupled, going back to React or just a code in general, I think if you introduce a constraint and best practice, now you have to couple, like you use, you have to use this state management with this library, with this practice. So it's you're tightly coupling these options together and oh, you're making yeah. this, this system that you are dictating the governing constraint. You're saying use this system, use this best practice. Right. So it's, it's all coupled together. That's that's how I interpret that. That helps me a lot, actually. And I can see that applied to a number like a mono repo might be might be an idea, like another place where it's complicated. You have governing constraints because you're limited by the tools that are there and the participants are tightly coupled to the platform. But we're still using good practice. We're always taking feedback and changing it to meet the needs of the customer. But yeah, there's this, there are governing constraints there. Good one, Alex. Cool. All right. So now, now I think it's going to get interesting because this is where we start getting onto the left side of the Kinevin map, which is um, the two other system types, which are complex and chaotic. So is the environment complex? So in a complex environment, it's when, and what I like to switch years into at this point is talking about cause and effect and is when the cause and effect are not immediately obvious or there's unknown unknowns or known unknowns. And as a leader, you're encouraged from uh, Kinevin's perspective to uh, probe, sense, and respond. 
so before we get any further, let's let's talk about the difference between complex and complicated. Just words. Yes. What do they mean? Because we just talked about complicated, and I know I've been using comp complicated and complex inter interchangeably. So to me, in the past, at least, it meant the same thing. Now I know the difference. So, I, but but I want to I want to stop here and and talk about that. All right. So let's actually look. I'm, gonna, I'm pulling up the definition verbatim. So complicated, it's containing intricately combined or involved parts. Not easy to understand or analyze because of being intricate, composed of interconnected parts, not simple, complex, complicated. So complex is part of how complicated is described. Complex means consisting of interconnected or interwoven parts, a composite composed of two or more units. That's okay. a tough one. I did some research and, and to me, here's what I, how I understand it. Complicated, we have the system where parts are known. Like we know what parts of the system are. We can disassemble the system and put it back together. So we know how to deconstruct it and construct it back. It's just complicated because there's a lot of them in the system. Like a one. And you can, yeah, you can put it together in different ways, like Lego. Mm -hmm. And complex system works. We know the system works, but we don't really know how the parts are interacting with each other. Yeah. How they are connected together. So if we take one part away, the system is different. Mm -hmm. But we don't know how it's different. Right. Right. Oh, that's a great, great way to describe it, Alec. Yeah. And the connections, between these parts are as important as the parts themselves. Yes. So now that we're comfortable with the separation between those two things, so complex is pretty complicated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in a complex environment, things are loosely coupled. So that makes sense to me because if we're, you're, if we're in a human system and we have multiple teams at play that contribute to create technology organization or any really any organization, each team is usually off kind of doing their own thing, but as a whole, they create product. They create the experience that customers at the end of the day are involved in. And if you removed any of those teams or an individual from that team, it's hard to determine exactly what the side effect's going to be. For instance, if you've ever had somebody leave your company, and then all of a sudden these little pockets of uh, things that are no longer being taken care of start to emerge. And I didn't know this person was just handling these things. Now, what do we do when we have to respond to that? I think is a, another good example to, to think about loose coupling. Yeah, I just think all the interactions, any company, any team, I think all the interactions are complex. I think all the systems, if you think of uh, a software development, like in the, in, the, in the company setting, I think it's all complex because these connections are pretty much hidden. Like you don't know which connections and how people are interacting because you don't see all the interactions, right? It's impossible for one person to see all the interactions and, and dynamics on the team and in the code. So there's a lot, a lot of variables and how they are connected. It's a, it's a mystery. It is. And we see this in software practice with things like blue green deploys, continuous integration, continuous deployment, QA automation, and those types of things. They're the practice of trying, like we think we're putting safeguards in, 
But I think what we're really doing is creating an opportunity for an event for, for us to understand emergence. Uh, that's a complex language is this is the area of emerging practice where your practice is going to change. You're going to learn how to behave over time or as you continue to run experiments. Yeah, I think like a good example is a legacy product project that's running. It's running like don't touch it. Don't do anything because it's going to break. It's just going to fall and nobody will be able to pick it up and fix it. Just don't touch it. Let it run. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. And then when you do change it, it's hard to tell or predict what effect it's going to have. Exactly. Cool. So this is also the area of enabling constraints. And uh, this one was tricky for me. I didn't really understand what the enabling constraint was. And I did a little bit of research and I came across a blog post by uh, Tom McCallum, from, uh, who's a leadership consultant from uh, a, a company called What's Next. And we spoke on enabling constraints and Tom was very gracious to give uh, some of his time, time to me for this, for this conversation. And it was really interesting because he, uh, and then he wrote a blog post about this that we can, we can link to as well. But the way he described it was enabling, the word enabling and the word constraint are in direct opposition to each other. And how any constraint can actually feel enabling, but it depends on how the constraint is defined and enforced on the system. So what does that mean? And we had a chat, Alex, about developers from time to time. We don't think we have enough the time that we want to spend in our software to make the decisions that we think we need to make for the sake of the longevity, uh, safety, and the general well-being or extensibility of, a, of an application or a code base. And so in one argument that usually comes up is the 20% rule. Was it Google that came up with the 20% dev time? So they get 20% of their time. Yeah, originally, yes. Yeah. So they published this as a practice. And a lot of other companies have adopted it and, and, it's, and engineers discover the 20% time and they, and they usually ask for that. But it's different, I think, if it happens, and speaking in context to the enabling constraint, if an engineer is given 20% of their time to act as they, they think they need to for the sake of creating a better product, the constraint is time. So they're constrained 20, only 20% 20 of their time to behave that way. Does that make sense? So now it, does that feel like a constraint to you now? It feels like an ask. It does. Yeah. But I'm, I just want to tease out the constraining part. Like what are, we're constraining an engineer's time. So we're sure. constraining around 20% time. So the point here that Tom was making, and, um, and I apologize if I'm butchering this, but an enabling constraint isn't me going out as a leader hearing about Google doing this 20% time with their dev team and then going to my team and then saying, hey guys, 20% of your time, you can do whatever you want, guys and girls. Like it's, right? That feels very different as a constraint. That's more of a govern, if at that point, it's a governing constraint instead of an enabling constraint because enabling constraints require the, those being constrained to participate in the, the development of that constraint. For instance, my team, we use the developer sprint. So we get two weeks to do, uh, to plan and act the way we think we need to, to be successful for a certain duration or an increment. We didn't go by the way of the 20% time, but does that mean 20% time wouldn't work for another team? No, I don't think that's true. I think it absolutely could. Could the dev sprint work for another team? Sure, it could. 
but the point of the enabling constraint is that the the system that it's constraining participates in the de definition of what it is i think it overlaps uh with motivation commitments and accountability mm -hmm. right so if um I'm an engineer and I see this uh, mass in the code and I want to fix it. If somebody else comes in and tells me I have to, like, I have to fix it, maybe I'm not going to be as motivated to fix it or I will feel differently about the ask as opposed to if it's coming from me. I see the mass, I discovered it, I'm motivated to fix it. I'm going to go and ask, can I spend 20% of the time constrained, right? 20% mm -hmm. is the constraint, not 50, not 60, but 20%. Or maybe it's a it, it translates to one sprint or a week of time. So if it's it's coming from me, I'm asking for it. I I want to enable myself with this constraint to go and fix this technical debt or whatever mess is there. As opposed to what's coming from somebody else as a Jira ticket and it's part of the sprint and it's like I'm not really motivated to fix it. So that that's a different type of constraint. Yeah, I think for us. Enable, like the deadline was also mentioned as an enabling constraint, but think of who's defining the deadline. If it's an outside party telling us that, or, or a team that we run, that I expect X to be delivered by Y, that is a governing constraint. An enabling constraint is you and I are having a conversation and we say, let's do our best to get this done by next Friday. That is an enabling constraint because Deadlines are good tools to help us be accountable to ourselves and making decisions and getting work done, but they're, how they're applied to our teams and our systems can, can vary. So that's where I think like the enabling constraint and really fits in. And what I think is really interesting is we're thinking about if we want to separate governing constraints from enabling constraints, governing constraints we apply to a system um, for the sake of constraining, right? What can happen? And then enabling constraints allow for emerging practices, I think, more naturally. Yeah, I think another example is reducing the scope. If you have a big project, how can you reduce the scope so you can get, get it done, make it simpler for, for your team to, to, to finish it? Mm -hmm. so you're introducing more constraint. How do we constrain the scope even more so it becomes simpler so it's more possible for us to get it done on time or whatever other constraints we have in addition? The other thing that's really important with, with an, an enabling constraint or to come up with a good enabling constraint. And this is also something Tom said is, says you have talk to your team, talk to your team about what is it about your day that makes you feel like you're enabled? What enables you? And then but that's the key word enable, right? Yeah, right. That's right. So how does that going back to complex? How does does that enabling constraint relate to complex systems? How does it help? So I'm in this complex unknown system that's a lot of connections. I'm thinking of it as a graph. Like it's, it's a big graph with lots of connections as opposed to complicated as a, as a tree. It's more structured, right? So I'm in this right. graph. I'm in the middle of this graph, like with the lots of nodes and connections and, and everything. How does this enabling constraint help me? Agile might be a, an interesting one. So if let's look at Agile as let's, let's maybe let's talk about it in as a in complicated, uh, let's kind of walk it through in practice, obvious, complicated and complex and, and try and see what that feels like. So we know Agile, the building blocks you have of Scrum, you have the daily standup, you have several ceremonies in the, in your inventory. You have uh, retrospectives, 
you have um, sprint planning, backlog grooming, and all that stuff. So if I was going to treat agile as an obvious practice, then I would probably try to use things like the uh, the agility score, right? So oh, I forgot the term, velocity. Okay, so a team uses velocity, and I think it's probably a good one. Teams use velocity to measure their output, right? Their ability to deliver increments to the customer. And an obvious, if we're treating agile in, in, as an obvious tool, then we would say things like, well, everyone should have the same velocity score, right? I saw you made a I, face I, there. I, I don't if you're listening, Alex made a face. <laughs> I don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay, good. And that's actually, that, that's your intuition working right now, by the way. So let's look at, um, and I'm gonna, let's, I think velocity is a good one because I got a response out of you. So now let's look at velocity as a complicated, right? In the complicated space, so I would look at velocity as, so good practice, there might be, maybe I'd be looking for an average. Right. So there's like an average or a median that I might be getting closer. Okay. Across multiple teams. Right. Now, in a complex uh, with emerging practice, I kind of like the velocity for me is largely like I'm looking probably more for the extremes. So I'm going to look at the lowest and I'm going to look at the highest. And then I'm going to try to understand what's happening in the lowest category. Because in context, that might be okay. And um, what I want is more of the folks that have the higher velocity score. But I also have to understand the decisions that they're making on the higher end. For instance, how do they size things? Like if they allocate like eight points to something that took two hours to do, is that really a fair measure? It's not that it's wrong. It's just that in context of that team and how they're operating, that's what, how they're getting those points. So then I might look at closer at, okay, well, who's kind of in the middle range here? How are they operating? What are, how do they think of compl- like their work and how do they score their work? And then that might I help me identify a position or style of thinking that those folks have. And then I'll look at the, the folks that have the lowest velocity and try to say, like find in complex in term is an adjacent possible. So what's the behavior right next door to where the, the lowest velocity scores exist that we can kind of start nudging or coaching this team into? And uh, something that David says, David Snowden says too, is um, using the terminology less like this, more like that, and that you're continuously running experiments using enabling constraints. So talking to the team like, hey, how do you feel enabled? How do you score points? Oh, that's interesting. Have you tried this? Or what could help us better break down? Like maybe there's something wrong in the process. And then talking to the team about how they're working together. And then from the team, uh, using tools like the retrospective to identify experiments that we could use to then see if their point or their velocity score begins to improve over time. And that's, in my opinion, just using velocity and how, how we use Agile how if I walked it through each of them or how I could treat it would, would look like. Does that help at all? Right, so, so yeah, in the, so in the complex, taking velocity as an example, and the flow is probe, sense, and respond. So probe, see if it works. Sense, can you nudge it or not in, in which direction? And then respond, actually do it, right? Based on the, uh, on the feedback and kind of keep in this loop, keep iterating, keep probing, keep, keep trying. Like, 
should you do more of this or more of that? Right. And in the practicing and complex um, systems, we also develop parallel safe to fail experiments because the whole part of the probing is understanding what reality is and then making sense of where we're trying to go and responding to experiments. And either we amplify the things that we want to keep or we mute or diminish the things we don't. And that's how the system evolves over time. Okay, makes sense. The last one here is, is the environment chaotic. And chaos is tricky. I think chaos has, uh, at least in my growing up or understanding of the term, chaos is put in this really bad light. It's very negative. But I believe in some of the stuff I was tweeting about, I think chaos can actually be a great tool. And the same thing with um, being complex. As leaders, we tend to think of when things get really com- like very complex, I'm trying to be careful not to throw complicated out too often. But when it seems very complex, it tends to be overwhelming and we want things to be more obvious. And what I've really appreciated about Kinevin and uh, complex complexity theory is it makes me feel more comfortable that the world is just compl- complex in general. It's just a complex place to be. And to give up trying to make everything obvious, but enjoy the process, or at least for me, my, my inner story or inner dialogue is let's have some fun working through this complex scenario using what we understand about the world and the skills and the things that we've learned. But with chaos, chaos is decoupled. So there's no coupling between things. It's impossible to draw any lines between cause and effect, and it's lacking constraint. So there's no constraint at all. And if our environment is chaotic, then we are to act, sense, and respond seeking novel practice and novel meaning like new new ideas and uh, new ways of working okay i'm wondering i'm trying i was trying to think this morning about an example of when i felt like things were chaotic yeah i think i read in uh in in the book in ganavan book uh, there was an example of covid so covid happens right everything is upside down right so the the general rule is never waste a crisis, right? Okay. So I think the example is, even though it's chaotic, deploy two teams in chaos. One is innovation team and try novel practices, try different things because it's a completely new environment, completely chaos. It's a good opportunity to innovate, introduce something new and try different things. And at the same time, deploy a business recovery team. Don't go out of the business while this is happening. So this is how you react or act in this chaos. Try to innovate, try to novel practices. How can you do something differently to survive? And at the same time, try not to go under, under try not to go out of the business. Right. Uh, so that, you gave me some ideas. So I'm going to think of popping corn. And it's a terrible metaphor, but I think it's, it's simple enough for us to, to kind of talk about how to act in, in chaos and walk through acting, sensing, and responding. 
So I'm imagining like a flat surface area that's very large and it's covered in popcorn kernels. And I turn on the heat and then the popcorn starts to pop. And I mean, while you can make a connection between the heat and the kernels, there are no guarantees on which direction the, the popping is going to go, right? It's just going to, it's going, we just know it's going to pop. We just don't know where it's going to go. But if my goal, if the goal is that, oh, so that's the environment, right? So corn is popping on, let's say it's, uh, this, it's a massive surface and these kernels are flying all over the place. And now that's our environment. I'm coming to this environment. It doesn't matter, right? Like the metaphor of if a tree falls in, in the woods, does it make a sound, right? So does does adding sense and order to these popping kernels even matter? But maybe it does once a leader emerges and we say, okay, we need to get this popping corn. We need to get it into a bucket so that we can serve it at the movie theater. And so the first thing we do is we'll probably act. Okay. We'll say like, I'm going to put up a wall here. I'm going to create a barrier. And then the popping corn will bounce off that and stay within these confined areas. So I'm going to try to constrain it. So I, may, I do that and then I look and I observe and what's happening and maybe some kernels are still, I'm, I'm sensing that things are still a little bit disordered. So then uh, I, I develop the next response to that, right? So it's res I'm responding to that effect of things still falling outside of the boundary. And then I act again until I get to the place where I've now confined this thing or I've at least moved it from chaotic to complex because... Now, maybe I've constrained the corns, but I still haven't gotten them into like human hands, like maybe people like butter or salt or whatever. And so then I need to now probe, sense, and respond to, the, to how people are behaving to the product I'm now giving them after I've gone from this kind of chaotic place or area. But also novel practice, I think, is the thing that I'm really attracted to with chaos is that chaos puts us in a position where we have to think of new ways of doing the same thing. And another, something that's a, or a phrase that I hear is rapidly repurposing of existing or known components. For instance, I think we do that all the time with technology. It's not that we're doing anything differently. It's just we're reorganizing things like we're reorganizing code parts constantly to create novel experiences for or, or humans. Uh, you can look at web redesign is, a, is another easy one to kind of to pick on because we could say that you're, we're always dealing with boxes. We're just moving them and organizing them in different ways. We're always dealing with text and typography. It's just that we're treating it. You have serif and sans serif. Those, those emerged for specific reasons. They had different, those are new ways of, of uh, creating characters for the sake of human consumption. Okay. Do you think um, like startups would be a good example for a chaotic system? Like I just recently saw uh, Bizly. I was uh, we were involved in, in Bizly, and I worked with them later. Um, so they were in the um, in the physical meeting business. Like they were organizing physical like in person meetings for companies. Like they would take care of all the logistics and and organize meetings. Now with the COVID, everyone works remotely. So what do they do? It's, it's a chaos, right? It, they, it's outside of their control. They can't really do anything. It's a different environment. They pivot into online meeting organizers. So they would organize the, the agenda. They would organize meeting notes. They would organize the, the logistics of Zoom and invites and everything. So it's still 
kind of similar, but it's a novel practice. They repurpose their idea of efficient meetings into something completely different. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's interesting. I struggle with that one a little bit, but I think it's still a good example. So their acting was based on the response to COVID. So they decided to pivot. They used sensing to understand where to go next. And they responded by building a new product. Well, they repurposed what product they had. They had some parts of the product of how to organize efficient meetings. Right. And they repurposed some of the parts into online. Right. It's not, of course, it's not the same. It's not in-person meetings, but some parts are the same. How people interact with each other. Again, the agendas, the organizing, who's hosting the meeting, all the logistics, what makes a good meeting. They repurposed that into online. So they are not making money again from the... Uh, physical space because they were kind of taking uh, margin from the, uh, the, the room they rented and whatnot, but now they don't have that. So they repurpose some parts, not all of the parts into something different. Yeah, I th- that's actually, that, that makes sense, right? So it was the repurposing of their existing technology to create a novel product and to practice for them, it was novel for the industry at large. There's some stuff creeping into that space, but for them now, they're competing with everyone else in this in the remote setting. Although I don't know, in this case, I think there is a constraint. Like people can't work in person or cannot meet in person. Is that a constraint? Oh yeah. And I know you said chaotic doesn't have effective constraints. It's lacking constraint. The term that's used. So I'm gonna actually that's a that's a good one because. Chaos, uh, in the stories that the, so Dave Snowden tells a, a story about trying to host a child's birthday party and chaos being just, there's the kids are just showing up. They're discovering drugs. There's no constraint. They, they've broken into the liquor cabinet. They're experiencing life in a, in their own way. And there's nothing, right. There's nothing that helps us understand the connection between cause and effect, like from life and business. I think, yeah, so COVID, I think, is, a, is an interesting one because at the same time, you're right, COVID created a whole, it's a whole set of constraints. And these are but at they're, the same they're time, governing it's a chaos. constraints. It's a chaos at the same time because what was be- true before, it's not true anymore. And everything is out of order. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's going to be a takeaway for me to think about more. Uh, borderline borderline so yeah let's, let's, let's leave it at that well because because i want to use i'm thinking of using so i've i've i'm playing with this term of like chaos orchestrator or chaos orchestration where you create a safe area where you remove constraints or enough constraints in a controlled way to allow for the emergence of novel ideas or new ways of working for example some companies will go off and build an innovation team and those teams are sometimes given complete freedom. They get their own budget, they get, they're fueled with whatever, and they can hire the talent that, that they find relevant. They can locate themselves wherever they want to in the world. There's just con- no constraints at all. But the subscriber, the stake or technical stakeholders of an innovation team are those curious to know what's coming out of them. So maybe there's, maybe even if there's no deadline. Right. You don't give an innovation team, an innovation team, any governing constraints outside of just 
maybe even a blank check for how much money they can spend. And then you just hope and pray something happens. Sounds like a good deal to me. <laughs> it, right, it does. But to me, I think that's they're completely decoupled. And even they can behave and, and act however they want to. They're lacking constraint. But also for the sake of we're, we're doing this on purpose for hoping with the hopes that novel practice will emerge and uh, maybe some kind of new innovation will be captured that we can take and move into complex and move it along. And that's the other characteristic of the Kinevin framework is that it's about moving things from one quadrant to another and always as a leader being understanding that or being in a position where you understand the state or the state of the system you're in and that something and it's, it's called uh, the the separation the lines between the uh, the quadrants are called liminal line so it's it's fluid it's flexible you're always like floating from one quadrant to another one back and forth when you're in that mode of making decisions yeah because there are some things that will become obvious and you we want to pattern those out and create and, and adopt best practice it's not that that is irrelevant it's just that as leaders, what we tend to do is live in the complicated, obvious parts of the like system parts and invoke our own decision-making only from those positions. And so it limits us a lot. And the other thing that I think was really important from this is that if I'm a new leader going into a company, that's a system at work. And so if I come in and I just do a reorg without talking to anyone, without meeting with the teams or getting to know what's going on, then I can break a lot of things that could have been really good or really powerful without. So there's this sense of, there's a sense of accountability as leaders that we have to systems in motion or systems in play. And we see this sometimes too, when technology, any organization really is embarking on some migration or they're going to change something about how their technology works. And while from a best practice perspective, feels really good, might have actually destroyed a lot of things that were really helping the business and the application teams along to be successful to, to begin with. So as leaders, it's really important for us to ask questions and try to ground ourselves and our decision-making and tools as leaders in reality and being specific instead of just working on this ideal case of, oh, I've used this tool once before, you're going to use it too, and just forcing uh, a complex system to just deal with it. Yeah, that happens a lot. Yeah, it does. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's, I'm not trying to pick on it. I'm just trying to change my mind about how I work with work within a system like that. And also, you know, obviously, you and I can't control everybody. That's actually something that is considered an, a constraint is other, other humans that we're interacting with. Their perception of the world, their thinking of what's, what's important in their priorities or how they think, how often their, their internal survival mechanics are being invoked. We can't control those things. So as leaders, we have to look at those as constraints and ask questions and defeat naive arguments or identify intellectual immaturity where people argue for the sake of arguing, but if you ask a couple of questions, they don't really know why they're making that argument. They just think that there's something worth talking about. And potentially there is. Yeah. 
Okay, so to finish it up, I uh, just want to summarize these quadrants and what to do and when you know you're in each of them. So to me, it sounds like when you're in, in the obvious state, in the obvious environment, you should just categorize and then respond to things. Then categorize, because, respond? Right. When you're in complicated, you want to start with analyzing and then responding. Sense, analyze, respond. So what does a sense mean? So both of them have lead with sense making first. Right. So you, so sense meaning like you should understand, then analyze? Yeah. What I like about sense is kind of like asking the question, is this obvious? Mm. Okay, this is obvious. Now I'll start to categorize things. Like I'll start organizing my Lego blocks from yellow and red blocks or whatever. And then analyze them. And then I'll, and then, so I'm, that's in a sense I categorize them and then I respond like, okay, we'll always put these in these two buckets and that's the job. Mm -hmm. for, for comp okay. Job. Okay. And then with complex, you start with probing. You start with how do I nudge? How do yeah. I start nudging in, in each direction and then send, sense and respond. So nudge and then see how it how it responds what the feedback is and then so a probe it. is take a sample go have a meeting with the with a team talk to your leaders and then while pro during the probing sense and get an idea of what's happening and then respond with a with safe parallel safe to fail experiments okay and then with chaos you should just act because there is no correlation between uh, what is it? Uh, cause, and cause, and, cause and effect, right? So you just act and then see what happens and then sense and then respond. Right. Yep. Okay. That's right. All right. Makes sense. Cool. Now I understand it much better. Well, at least a little bit better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> both, both of us, right? I think yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. we've both been doing this and Alex has been so much fun uh, talking about this. And we've been meeting a lot of really kind and generous people. Really excited about chatting with Dave, uh, Dave Snowden. Hopefully that's going to work out. And, uh, and happen for us this month. Um, yeah, well, at least we covered fundamental. We understand the framework. Mm -hmm. And now we can take it to the next level and, and go deeper and uh, be more philosophical and, yeah, uh, have interesting conversation. Then we can start talking about adjacent possibles and the fish bladder. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's a, it's a, this, uh, this framework or method is complex in itself. So um, it is, yeah. we can start with probing and sensing and then responding. Yeah, I guess the closing thought is we usually sometimes we think of frameworks as things we can pull off the shelf and start to use. That I don't that's not what this is. I don't think. Thinking on complexity is a state of mind. It's a mindset that we develop. And so if anyone is going to participate in Kinevin or thinking about complexity theory, it's uh, we really have to redesign how we think about the world and our how we participate in it and it really is a discipline i'm always trying to catch myself using trying to strive for best practice we always thought that that's what made good software best practice leads to good software but it's people that make good software and software can only ever be good not great yeah well framework means i just looked it up it means an essential supporting structure mm. so it's a structure so this is the framework it gives you structure to think about sense-making or decision-making. It gives you structure. If there's like four quadrants with the description of what to do in each one, to me, it sounds like a frame. Yeah, I completely agree. But it for me, is uh, maybe it's my engineering mind where I'm thinking like, oh, I'm going to pull React off and then 
or off the shelf and I'm gonna look at the docs and it'll become obvious to me how to use the thing. And well, complexity, it's it's not as obvious. There's well, it's a, a complex framework. It's a <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alex. All right, awesome. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, man. Thanks for tuning into the Pragmatic Lead Podcast. If you found this conversation interesting or helpful, we would appreciate your feedback. If you want even more content like what you just heard, check out pragmaticlead.com. If you have a story to tell, send an email to pragmaticlead at gmail.com and someone will be in touch. Thanks again.